0: Tim and Sam's Podcast, 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 Podcast. Tim Tim we, have and two, we, we have a, have a podcast which is really, really podcast. great, they on a what laws, Tim's luscious locks and shiny paint, making laws. the very best of mates, so what welcome what to the board. Sam has the news, news. It's the news. news. Tim does reviews, really political it's news, Well, days are confused.
1: Welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Today's episode is all about geography. Tim talks international competition politics and Rachmaninoff's disputed legacy.
2: Sam forges a musical map of Middle Earth in a Lord of the Rings analytical pilgrimage.
1: And there's a fluffy dog story too. Melon.
2: Let's kick off today's news quiz with some classical geopolitics, Sam. Mm. Which major but recently controversial music competition, held every four years, has just announced it's received over 700 applications from 41 countries, including the UK, Germany, France, USA and Ukraine?
1: Well, um, you say recently controversial. I'm going to assume that that either means Russia... Or a competition that has done something scandalous. And as I can't think of a competition that's done something scandalous, I think it will be... Ch- Is there a Tchaikovsky yeah, competition? that's
2: the one. International Tchaikovsky competition. For context, it has categories for piano, violin, cello, woodwind, brass, voice, and was founded in 1958 during the Cold hmm. War. Apparently the first competition of its kind held in the Soviet Union. There you go. In April last year... Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was excluded from the World Federation of International Music Competitions. And as far as I can tell, Putin ally Valery Gergiev is still chair of the organising committee. So it's not without controversy that citizens of NATO member countries have chosen to apply. Mm. What do we think? Should they have? Should it be boycotted? I think it's a really interesting dilemma, argument, debate...
1: Yes, it's slightly different from sort of the Olympics or something where people award countries prestige, isn't it? They've always had this thing going, which is in itself has become prestigious Mm. because of what it's done. So they're not necessarily getting external validation from the competition. They're getting external validation from the entrance. Yes. So then, that maybe shifts the responsibility more onto the entrance, maybe more than it does to an Olympian. Yes, that's a, yeah, it's comparison. an interesting
2: point. Yeah, yeah. And you, but then you, you you'll probably have people who say, you know, music crosses all political divides, and it's a yeah, it's a conduit for world peace. But then you have mm. to sort of think, well, hang on a minute, are you? Is that just a cover up for people who are being complicit in?
1: Well, like good and bad people can be very good at composing or very good yeah. at the piano or singing but then remembering our guest Howard Goodall's comment about competition and awards launching careers that early stage mm. actually the kind of people who are entering this competition aren't all that powerful they're not massively significant yeah, they're players they're using it as a
2: springboard you know they're looking yeah. for and the temptation of that springboard could you know clearly in this case for for this Ukrainian entrant for example is mm. clearly too... Tantalising a prospect to pass up. Mm. Um, so the answer is medium. It's medium, yeah. I, I, you know, and just for a bit of historical context, the first ever competition, uh, Tchaikovsky competition winner was Van Cliburn in the middle, an American pianist in the middle of the Cold War. Wow. So it's yeah. always had this history of geopolitical tension. Sort of reminds me a little bit of the musical chess. What a good so
0: good.
2: If you'll. Allow me to go off on a little tangent. Always. Russia does have form on harnessing its cultural pedigree for political purposes. The Sochi Olympics, you mentioned the mm. Olympics already, which took place just before the annexation of Crimea. is often cited as an exercise in sports washing. Another fascinating case study is Rachmaninoff. Yeah. It's been quite convincingly argued by Western musicologists that under Putin the composer's achievements and the perceived Russianness ness of his music have been co-opted to help promote a narrative of cultural nostalgia. Mm. bolstering this idea of Russkiy uh, Mir, a Russian world. Yeah. And at the same time, Ratmanov's emigre history, after all he eventually became a US citizen, has been quietly ignored There have been some pretty bold attempts by the Russian government and media to reclaim him for this purpose. I mean, literally, in 2015, the culture minister tried to get his body exhumed from Valhalla in New York, where he's buried, and reinterred in Russia. And then articles about him in state media and in Russian academia famously plagued with inaccuracies or misrepresentations. I've actually linked one from the state-funded Russia Beyond in the episode notes that claims Rachmaninoff never took US citizenship, which is sort of flagrantly untrue. Mm. And similarly, this is fascinating, in 2015, the arts newspaper Cultura, which is also state-backed, published a fictional interview with Tchaikovsky, famously a gay man, famously in which he denounced his love of men. <laughs> anyway, to come back circuitously to the original point, in this context... Putin's year of Rachmaninoff, announced by official decree for the composer's 150th anniversary, it takes on a slightly different meaning, right? Um, mm. As does the newly established Rachmaninoff International Competition, and therefore possibly the International Tchaikovsky Competition too. So mm.
1: I also noticed that when you say Putin, you go Putin, yes, and I say pu- I say Pew like Mew, but.
2: I don't know. It's like people that say David Bowie instead of Bowie. Are you right? I know Bowie's right. I don't know about (laughs) Putin. Steve Rosenberg says... Vladimir Putin. While we're in the world of musical geopolitics, which country will the New York Philharmonic be performing three concerts in on its way to Hong Kong and Shanghai this summer? Oh... I
1: mean, surely the only newsworthy one
2: is North Korea. <laughs> no, it's not. Is it,
1: it's not. It's. Is it Taiwan? Yeah, it's Taiwan. Oh, now that actually is a little bit hot and tasty, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Old Joe keeps saying that he'll uh, defend Taiwan's right, or whatever. He, he, yeah. He's a bit blunter on that than and they.
2: Who, who was it? Some politician, some U.S. politician, recently went on a visit there, which sparked some military exercises yeah, in absolutely the area. someone. Yeah. It's yeah. terrifying. But apparently the, the orchestra hopes to use this um, to, to ease political tensions. Mm. Gary Ginstling, that's a great name, isn't it? Ginstling. Who is um, the incoming president and CEO, said that at a time when communication and trust are on the decline, our firm belief is that cultural diplomacy is more important than ever. Showing that we can span borders and bring people closer through music is at the heart of our mission.
1: Yeah, he is Forrest Gump playing table tennis, right?
2: Exactly, yes. Or is he Louis Armstrong performing in the Soviet Union? Oh,
1: Dizzy Gillespie in the Middle East, yeah.
2: Oh, we're full of facts. Facts. A couple of other ridiculous news stories coming out of the States, Sam. Washington (laughs) National Opera has announced its latest premiere. Coming to the stage in October is Janine Tesori's adaptation of George Brandt's play Grounded. In which a hotshot fighter pilot is reassigned to control drones in Afghanistan from a Las Vegas trailer. It's an interesting conceit for an mm-hmm. opera. But which company do you think is the presenting sponsor?
1: Oh, is it someone like Lockheed or BAE? Sort of like you know, is it a bombing?
2: Yeah, General Dynamics, an aerospace and defence company which makes tanks, rockets, missiles, submarines, warships, fighters and electronics for the military. You couldn't make this up. According to Wikipedia, that fountain of accurate knowledge, it's the fifth largest defence contractor in the world by arms sales. (laughs) Why were two Oklahoma county jail guards given community service and a fine this month? Uh, I think I did read about this. Were they playing... I mean, I thought we got rid
1: of this in... uh, Sort of the mid-noughties mm. uh, with the Guantanamo in Iran, stuff. Iran, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah um, Playing music uh, horrendous volumes to people.
2: Yeah, nonstop. they were playing children's songs, uh, including Baby Shark, on yeah. repeat. Also, this week in the states, which rapper has filed paperwork in order to run for president in the twenty twenty four U.S. election as an independent candidate? And the clue is, it's not it, It's someone other than Kanye. Oh, right. Well, I mean, that was where my gut was going. He's
1: done it twice now, I think, hasn't he? I don't know. Uh, definitely once, yeah. Maybe threatened to do it the time before. Oh, I, no, I,
2: and he is planning to run for this uh, okay. upcoming one as well, yeah. Um, I have no idea. man. Afro Man. Because I Got High. Yeah. Uh, His campaign manager, Jason Savage, told TMZ that uh, criminal justice reform and federal marijuana legalisation remain two of the primary planks in his campaign platform. We're asking for your support as Afro Man takes on this great and worthy cause as our cannabis (laughs) commander-in-chief. That's great. Just out of interest, Sam, how many votes do you think Kanye got when he ran in 2020?
1: Um... I mean, his albums selling the millions, but maybe if that's one in every
2: hundred thousand, not not bad. Half that, he got fifty thousand votes before conceding. Wow! Uh, it's not not an entirely wholesome news. So I have cut a couple of more wholesome ones to end with, thank really, you, just to round kind. it up. Yeah, take a listen to this clip and tell me how old do you think the performer is.
1: is it interesting with the piano that person could be any age Mm -hmm. they could be like seven or 107 whereas like a voice even brass instruments so anything that's got a bit more like breath, physical intensity, yeah. you'd really notice if someone was either junior or very senior, mm-hmm. which I guess they are, if you're asking me. It wouldn't be 38 and good at the piano, would no. it?
2: <laughs> no, no, that was 108-year-old Colette Maze or Maz, she's French, so perhaps it's pronounced Maz. Mm. Maz. Uh, she's yeah, French pianist about to release a new album. Uh, 108 Years of the Piano will feature music by Gershwin, Piazzolla, Schumann and Debussy, and comes five years after her previous release. Which is all to be sea music. What animal have the Danish Chamber Orchestra been auditioning for a performance of Leopold Mozart's rarely performed hunting symphony? Animal. Um, if it's hunting, I guess it's going to be a ma- uh, pet owner. Mm. Like, beagles. It, yeah, dogs. The orchestra appealed to pet owners, inviting them to test out their talents in front of a live orchestra. Uh, the winning pair will join the group For a performance at the Haydn Festival In September so Something to look forward to <laughs> That's a wholesome save You've brought it
1: right back round <laughs> Literally with a fuzzy dog story
2: Yes do. <laughs> On the page it looked Nothing The beginning simple
1: Almost comic Just a pulse Bassoons Basset horns like a rusty squeeze box. (laughs) And then, suddenly,
0: high above it,
1: an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering.
2: Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight.
0: <sighs> you gotta pick up it or two.
1: Beethoven's piano sonata number 17, The Tempest. Meet the Flintstones, composed by Hoyt Curtin in 1961.
0: Meet the the
2: you gotta pick a or two. In today's analysis, we're talking about tone. Tone.
1: Striking the correct tone has always been an integral part of the co simultaneity of musical, not just performance, but also pre-performance, post-performance, and of course, peri-performance. From the ancient Greeks and their understanding, stratification even, of the different modes, to Edmund Apollinac and Vito Frazzi's different interpretations of the discontinuous use of tones and semitones in the so-called octatonic. Hey, great
2: stuff, really great, but it's not quite the right tone for our audience. Mm. Something more uh, down with the kids, looser, you know.
1: Yeah, no, sure, I, I
2: could feel it, I could feel it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. take two. Hey, hey, hey! Yeah. Loud noises!
1: Welcome to The Breakfast Show! Supposed <laughs> to be in the studio, bringing you all the hot goss and lots of different scales today. Tifa. Yeah, none, yeah. Try again? Yeah, okay, let's talk about tonality, but let's do it whilst also... Talking about The Lord of the Rings. Better. Roll it. Howard Shaw, a man with more forehead than you'd have thought, is a Canadian composer who should be most famous for scoring all of David Cronenberg's weird, fleshy horror movies. And turning one of these, The Fly, into an opera. But is actually best known for winning three Oscars for writing the music for Peter Jackson's weekend-consuming double trilogy of Tolkien adaptations The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit.
2: Three movies for The Hobbit is still a farce. Shaw's Scores' use of
1: leitmotif assigning melodies to different characters and developing them in sympathy with the drama is discussed at length throughout academic journals and YouTube comment sections.
2: It's barely 300 pages.
1: By contrast, today we'll be thinking about how those different motifs create a sense of geography and familiarity for the different peoples of Middle-earth, hobbits, men of the West, and elves all get different tonalities.
2: I stand by the casting of Martin Freeman, but not much else. Timbo, bringing you back to Middle-earth, we're basically hobbits, aren't we? Fair shout, hairy feet, love of ales, ideally home-brewed. Most at home in a field.
0: No, we're not dirty ish. Much taller and we've grown trendy beards to move to the city.
1: In Shaw's score, the whole audience is meant to feel like hobbits. They're given the most familiar feeling, diatonic harmony.
2: Tone, diatonic, using the major and minor scales you all learnt for Grade 1. The Shire theme
1: is strongly diatonic.
2: Using a major scale for the melody in chords 1, 4 and 5, with just a hint of 6 for the harmonisation. This is so familiar
1: because it's the bedrock of tonal harmony since Bach, and it's used for every pop banger in the charts today.
2: We spend the first 30 minutes of the film in the Shire, we get properly bedded into the diatonic harmony.
1: The first time we hear that opening theme is the first idle chatter about birthday celebrations between Frodo and Gandalf.
2: Comfy harmony, friendly conversations will be longing for this idle chatter once the Uruk Hai are marching.
1: Only at the end of the trilogy do we get a sustained return to such stable, square, predictable harmony... The Shire theme pops up again in a hymn like version, and I start gently weeping whilst Aragorn is crowned, and he tells the hobbits, You bow
2: to no one. It's something to do with Vigo's eyes. They tell the whole story. Hobbits, diatonic, familiar.
1: Ready for a Steinbeck bit? Sure. Let me read to you from Of Modes and Men of the West. The alfalfa looks real low, Lenny. Almost as low as the flattened third and seventh degrees of the Dorian mode. You
2: wanna see flat? Boy, have I got some rabbits to show you.
1: Oh dear. Unlike a minor scale, which has a flat three and a flat sixth. The Dorian has a flat three and a flat seven. It's used all over films that want to create an ambiguously historical past.
2: Pirates of the Caribbean, Braveheart, Angry Birds... The Dorian mode feels a little unfamiliar and vaguely historical, and Shaw uses it to conjure the themes for the two human nations, Gondor and Rohan in a great bit of mode
1: tweaking. The first time we hear the Rohan theme, when Theodin is still all dandruffy and controlled by Wormtongue, it's in an even flatter mode with a flat three, flat six, and flat seven. But then when Gandalf turns up and Theodin goes back to being recognizable as the same guy who played the captain in Titanic, we get the more heroic Version.
2: Gondor is cut from the same cloth, a hint of sadness whenever Faramir or Boromir is talking about the fact that there are people constantly at war, that gradually gets brighter. They're sort of familiar and sort of shadowed. Men are modal. Sort of familiar, sort of sad. Elves. sons, shelves. The unfamiliar elves. More different from us hobbits
1: again than men. Yes, they speak a different language using a different alphabet. They're
2: timeless intellectual thinkers, slightly morally ambiguous, tall and beautiful. Characteristics unfamiliar to most of us. And this unfamiliarity is characterised... Using the same sort of tekkers that our buddies from the 19th century were using when Liszt was writing myth-inspired tone poems, or Schubert was trying to express introverted wanderers. Moving your harmony by a third.
1: Just call me Tarnhelm.
2: All right, Tarnhelm. Rivendell sounds like this.
1: It's basically a normal familiar triad, but it moves funny from A major to F major. Moving a major chord by the
2: interval of a major third is weird. It sounds a bit unfamiliar. And we get that noodly flat six at the top of the arpeggio. Hints at something otherworldly. The
1: harmony also moves slowly, which suggests the eternal lives of our pointy-eared friends.
2: Sam, the script says, insert Spock joke here.
1: Most illogical.
2: Rivendell elves are a bit unfamiliar, but
1: they're also kind. Later in the journey, Lothlorien and the Woody Elves of Galadriel are a bit ambiguous when we first meet them.
2: And so their slow-moving, ripply-moving harmony, which hops around in thirds, moves chords around that have both minor and major thirds clashing in them. This is layered on top of this. To make this. Spooky. But not spocky. And sure, they turn out to be goodies. Just. But still goodies played by Kate Blanchett, so they definitely feel a bit otherworldly.
1: Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as a ball.
2: Elves' tonality moves in thirds, making them Unfamiliar.
1: The three goody races in The Lord of the Rings are all characterised by different tonalities. Hobbits are diatonic, in the major scale, homely. Men are modal, old worldly, capable of rising, but still a bit unfamiliar.
2: Elves move strangely and slowly, they're the most unfamiliar.
1: But what of the fellowship I hear you cry?
2: What, what of the, the fellowship?
1: Regarding the fellowship theme, sure, 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 how do you like it? Sticks to his own rules. The Nine Riders of the Light are a cosmopolitan advert for woke diversity, made up of elves, men, and hobbits. So too, their music must combine
2: all of these colours. From the elves, we get the movement by thirds, D major to F major.
1: From the hobbits, we get the simple,
2: diatonic melody. And from men, we get a big, modal, chonky cadence. B flat, C, D major.
0: And my.
1: Oh, bugger, we'll have to do dwarves another time. Composer Fact File, Howard Shaw.
0: Born October 18, 1946 in Toronto.
1: Shaw was part of a jazz fusion band named Lighthouse for about three
0: years. From 1975 to 1980, Shaw worked as the musical director for Saturday Night Live for childhood friend Lorne Michaels.
1: He appeared in several sketches and suggested the name for the Blues Brothers. His
0: first BAFTA nomination was for Silence of the Lambs.
1: Shaw's score for The Two Towers was going to be deemed ineligible for submission to the Academy, due to a new rule that disallowed the submission of scores which contained themes from previous work.
0: However, the implementation of this rule change was postponed, meaning the score remained eligible.
1: Shaw was commissioned to compose the soundtrack for King Kong, but he was later replaced by James Newton Howard due to differing creative aspirations for the score.
0: Despite this, Shaw has a cameo at the film, as the conductor of the orchestra in the theatre, performing portions of Max Steiner's score to the original 1933 version of the film.
1: Bonus analysis. This is very much the Silmarillion section for the keenest of fans.
2: Just a note about the Rings of Power and the spoilers certainly included.
1: In fact, it's really only about a spoiler, so just skip this section if you need to.
2: The music for the Rings of Power is not by Howard Shaw, but instead composed primarily by Bear McCreary. He is picking up on the precious ring musical tradition and has to
1: develop it as well as honor Shaw's Oscar-winning work.
2: And his evolution of and interaction with Shaw's themes gives us a bit of foreshadowing about the series' big reveal.
1: The theme for centre-parting heartthrob Halbrand is this. Recognise it at all? Perhaps if your ears naturally start playing things backwards whilst you hear them
2: forwards. How Brand backwards is... Ringing any bells? Theme catch a big flaming eye in the school? Do you need to hear it once more, door? <laughs> okay, enough. Hal Brand's music backwards is Sauron's theme. Play them together and it creates a sort of never-ending loop. You might even call
1: it a ring. But then the only time they're heard together in the show, they're actually not overlapping,
2: they clash. Creating an octatonic scale.
1: Alternating half tones and tones, it sounds very unfamiliar and deeply scary.
2: Good to know that Sauron gets his own tonality too.
1: Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. I should say. Pur- purposeful, 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 purposelessness, meaninglessness. I should say. Pur- purposeful, pur- purposeful, purposeful, meaningless, I say. Pur- purposeful, pur- purposeful meaninglessness. Pur- purposeful, purposeful, meaninglessness. Classical music pod, I should
2: say. First up, thanks to David Kettle, uh, journalist at The Scotsman, for your nice letter note about enjoying the Anna Thorisdottir interview. That was very Mm. nice to receive. Good to know that somebody's listening.
1: Yeah, like anyone with a, a noun for a surname.
2: Yes. Yes. Can we think of any other good examples? Fish. Michael Fish, Michael Fish, that Weatherman that got it wrong. He did indeed.
1: Uh, My thank yous. I'd like to a thirty-five-year-old joke. I think it's older than we are. Michael Fish. (laughs) Uh, The just a big shout out to all the people on the internet discussing the Lord of the Rings soundtrack at length. It is exhaustive. Mm. If today has wet your appetite, trust that there is debate over every bar. Even the stuff that didn't make it into the films. The things that were just on the soundtrack. There are people transcribing Uruk to share with one another and then uh, fall out over. Um, but in particular, there's a fine article called Scoring the Law of the Rings by a scholar called Roan that was very helpful for today. And mm. um, just it's a rich seam that people can go and lose themselves in if they fancy it.
2: Yeah. And finally, thanks to all those editors who weren't interested in my pitch about <laughs> Rachmaninoff <laughs> and Russian propaganda, because you know at least I was able to use that research for uh, a nice tangent in the news. So
1: it was great. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>
2: If that be the case, then you leave me no choice, sirrah. No choice? I snub my nose at you, sirrah. You snub
1: your nose at me? Why, I shall have your nether plumage for a house duster. A jewel it
2: must be, you ostrich-jowled heathen. Pistols for you humulus homunculi. A joust, fiend. What's all this, then?